This Sunday we have heard three readings from the prophet Jeremiah, from the first epistle to Timothy, and from St. Luke's Gospel. All three relate to the theme for this Sunday as found in the Collect. Grant us the fullness of your grace that we, running to obtain your promises, may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. If you're anything like me, our reading from Jeremiah left you scratching your head and wondering how that came out of left field. It's rather different from the readings from Jeremiah we've heard the last few weeks, where we have him proclaiming doom and gloom, destruction and despair, because of the impending fall of Israel and Judah. This reading is important because it gives us an insight into Jeremiah's attitude toward the future of Judah, the southern kingdom. By purchasing a field in Anathoth at the very time when Jerusalem was under siege and he himself was in prison, Jeremiah showed quite clearly how strong was his belief that the land had a future and would not be completely destroyed. It also was an example of the application of the law of redemption found in Leviticus 25. This material seems to be placed here because of its subject matter, not because it belongs here chronologically. It doesn't. Chapters 30 and 31 have just dealt with the future of Israel, the northern kingdom. So this chapter, chapter 32, is concerned with the future of Judah. Chronologically, it belongs between chapters 37 and 38. When chapter 37 is read before our reading, it makes a lot more sense. If you did that, here's what you'd learn. The date is 588 B.C., probably summer or early fall. The Babylonian siege of Jerusalem had begun in January of that year, and the city fell in August 587 B.C. Jeremiah had been arrested during an interval when the Babylonians had lifted the siege for fear of the approaching Egyptian army. Jeremiah was trying to leave the city to go to Anathoth, the city where he was born and where he still had family. He was first placed in prison in the house of Jonathan the scribe, but he petitioned the king and was removed to the court of the guard, where he stayed until the city fell. The court of the guard, an open court in the palace complex, was used to detain prisoners who did not require strict confinement. The event here recorded was obviously witnessed by many people, and Jeremiah obviously had a good deal of freedom. The purpose of the law of redemption from Leviticus was to keep property within the family so that it did not fall into foreign hands. Jeremiah apparently bought the property to prevent it from being taken by a creditor or sold outside the family. Jeremiah must have had an income of some sort, but we do not know what it was. Verses 9 through 12, which describe the actual act of purchasing the field in detail, are extremely rare. 
This is the only place in the Old Testament where such details of property transactions are given. Jeremiah would have been buying the field, which belonged to his cousin, so it would remain in the family and not fall into alien hands. Jeremiah weighed out 17 shekels of silver because at this time the Hebrews did not have coined money. 17 shekels weighed about 7 ounces. But since we don't know the value of silver at the time, we can't determine how much this was worth. In the here and now, my back-of-the-envelope calculation is that 7 troy ounces of silver are worth about $140. As for the two deeds, the text of the deed was written twice on a single sheet of papyrus with a small space left blank between the two copies. The sheet was then cut through the blank space to half its width. Then one half was rolled and tied with thin strips of papyrus, and a wax seal was placed on the strips. This was the sealed deed which was preserved as a permanent record. The second half was then rolled up, and this roll was bent under the sealed copy and left attached to it. This was the open copy which could be consulted at any time without breaking the seal. Jeremiah gave the two deeds to Baruch, his secretary, in the presence of witnesses, with instructions to put both deeds in an earthenware jar to preserve them. This is certainly believable because papyrus documents have been found preserved in pottery jars in Egypt and elsewhere. The main point of this entire exercise is found in the last verse. Quote, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Close quote. That is God's promise, that in spite of their being overrun and carried off into exile, God will return his people to their homeland and restore them to their former position. We heard a similar message proclaimed by the prophet Hosea a few weeks back. That clearly fits right in with the theme of this Sunday, that we, running to obtain your promises, may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. The reading from 1 Timothy comes from the very end of the letter. We could call it Paul's final directions to Timothy. It is part of the message that he is to preach. This is a little homily in praise of moderation in the desire for money and the pursuit of material goods. Wealth here is not a privilege nor even an opportunity. It is a peril. The risks to the soul involved in its accumulation are so great as to warrant caution in going down that road. This point of view is clearly that of Jesus and is broadly Christian. Paul begins with a warning about seeking riches. This passage includes an aphorism that is frequently misquoted. Most people have heard it said, money is the root of all evil. That is not what Paul said. What he said is, 
The love of money is the root of all evil. That is a big difference. Paul then transitions to a more positive tone. Instead of seeking the goods of this world, Paul says we are to shun all that. We are to aim for righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. He twice refers to confession. This can be understood as either a baptismal confession or a confession before a Roman court. In either case, the believer praises God by affirming that Jesus is Lord. After this brief interlude, Paul returns to warning about wealth. The fact is that many a person is not successful in this world's view because of his loyalty to principles. And also that many a person has made money by his disregard for ethical principles. There are three searching questions to be applied to all wealth. How is it acquired? How is it used? To whom does the owner consider himself accountable in its use? In this passage, Paul repeats the conviction that the things of this world are the gifts of God, who richly furnishes us with everything to enjoy. But material possessions are to be judged by the use made of them and to the extent to which they are made to serve spiritual life, which is eternal life or the life which is life indeed. Clearly, these final directions to Timothy point directly at the theme for this Sunday, that we, running to obtain your promises, may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. Again today, St. Luke provides us a parable about the right use of our possessions, similar to last week. And again, as last week, this material is unique to Luke. Today's reading is commonly called Lazarus and Dives. Even though the rich man is unnamed, he is commonly called Dives, which is Latin for rich man. While we're at it, Lazarus means one whom God has helped. This is the only parable in which a proper name is used. And this is not the same Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, whom Jesus raised from the dead. This parable might seem to follow naturally from the reading from 1 Timothy. In reality, the opposite would probably be true. While the Gospels were written many years after Paul's epistles, Paul evidently had access to some record of sayings of Jesus, which of course predate his writing. This parable provides a colorful description of our state after death. In it, one part of Hades resembles Gehenna, the place of final punishment. There, Dives suffers fiery torment. The other part resembles paradise, the final dwelling place of the righteous. In it, 
Lazarus rests on Abraham's bosom. The two men can see one another and speak to one another, but actual passage from one part to the other is impossible, for between the two a great gulf has been fixed. Fiery torment seems to have powerfully focused the mind of Dives. He leaves behind the jerk he has been all his life and develops genuine concern for his five brothers. He begs that Lazarus may go to them and warn them, lest they also fall into the fate that befell him. The parable focuses entirely on the moral state of Lazarus, of Dives, and is silent on the moral state of Lazarus, other than that he is taken into paradise, seemingly in recompense for the earthly evil that befell him. The point is unmistakable. Dives led his life wrapped up in himself and caring nothing for others, here personified in Lazarus. Had he shown human compassion, his outcome might have been quite different. This further illustrates and supports the theme for this Sunday, that we, running to obtain your promises, may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. So we have heard Jeremiah pronouncing God's judgment on Judah, but at the same time, pronouncing that God will restore Judah to her former state in covenant with God. Judah will again obtain God's heavenly treasure. Paul provides a warning on the dangers of wealth and how it is acquired and how it is used. It is a guide for how we should run to obtain God's promises and attain to his heavenly treasure. Likewise, the parable of Lazarus and Dives is a vivid warning on the dangers of wealth and its use and misuse. The clear message is to stress the importance of having compassion for our fellow man and using the gifts God has given us to that end. That is how to run to obtain God's promises and attain his heavenly treasure. So, Take this opportunity to examine your lives. Pay special attention to how you treat those whom you encounter, both directly and indirectly. That should help you in running to obtain God's promises and to attain his heavenly treasure. Amen.